0: Please stand as you are able for the reading of today's scripture from Mark 14, verses 66 through 72. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she stared at him and said, you also were with Jesus, the man from Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I do not know or understand what you are talking about. And he went out into the forecourt. Then the cock crowed. And the servant girl, on seeing him, began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. Then after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to curse, and he swore an oath. I do not know this man you are talking about. At that moment, the cock crowed for the second time. Then Peter remembered that Jesus had said to him, Before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you,
1: Charlie, for reading our lesson. It is a joy to be with you on this third Sunday of the season we call Lent as we make our way to the cross, and I know I speak for all of us when I say we are particularly grateful to, uh, to have our youth who have returned. Some of them have returned. Uh, they've all returned from the Bahamas. Some of them have actually returned to church this morning, and we're grateful for that. They got back uh, very late last night, and uh, those of you who are here, would you please stand? We want to just thank you for the good work that you've done. We have a few that are here. Uh, thank you all so much. Uh, Adam tells me we took 38 and we returned with 38. So we're grateful for that and grateful for the good work that you've done. Spring breakers are returning, and uh, that means that traffic will return. And we've had a little reprieve, it seems, this week from our buses who have uh, uh, not been transporting. And so we're grateful for safe travel and for those who are returning, and especially uh, for Karen Mitchell and this wonderful flute choir. I know of nothing quite like this in the city of Nashville or anywhere, and we're grateful. Uh, to have you all with us. It means a lot to hear the beautiful music of Lent, What Wondrous Love Is This, as we worship today. Well, we come to week three in this series called Cross Training with another reading from the Gospel According to Saint Mark. It may be of interest to you to note that this is one of three, this is one of just a handful of stories that we've just read, that Charlie read that's found in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This episode, Peter's Denial, takes place in the context of a trial, the trial of Jesus. After Jesus is apprehended, taken into custody in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is ushered to the home of Caiaphas. You know that name, the high priest? where Jesus is deposed and interrogated and falsely charged. While this is happening, out in the courtyard at a distance, Peter is found, he's the last disciple who's tracking Jesus, is found in the courtyard warming himself with the guards, the Roman guards, by the fire. In fact, verse 53 says that Peter is now following Jesus at a distance. Now that's an interesting line, isn't it? Apparently, it has now become dangerous to be associated with Jesus. It still is in some places in the world. And so Peter at this point is carefully keeping some daylight between himself and his rabbi for good reason, I think. Jesus is on trial for his life. Of course, we know that the case is weak. There will be false charges, but the deck is stacked and the cards are marked. And these religious professionals mean business. And so Peter at this point is playing it safe, following Jesus from a distance. I can't help but believe that perhaps worse for Jesus than the mock trial Worse than the false allegations, more painful than the mocking, the thorns, the nails, was the distancing and the rejection of his closest friends. I was reading recently the work of Dr. Matthew Lieberman, doctor, medical doctor, researcher, who is actually a neuroscientist, who's written a book called Social. It's interesting, the subtitle why our brains are wired to connect. Dr. Lieberman has done significant research on the pain of social rejection. He says, and I quote, when we experience relational hurt through actions, through words, or through contempt or lack of encouragement, we use phrases like this. She really broke my heart. He hurt my feelings. I feel like I got punched in the gut. And so Dr. Lieberman, observing these comments, decided to study the effects on the brain of the pain of rejection. And one of his tests that I find very interesting involved doing a brain scan on people while they played an internet video game called Cyberball. And here's the way the test worked. In the game, three people, a human subject, that is, and two computerized players, toss a ball back and forth, one to each other. At the beginning of the game, all three players pass the ball to one another in turn, in sequence, everybody is participating. But at a given point, the two computerized players cut the human subject out of the game. They toss the ball to each other, and even though it's just a game and the subject knows that, and that it has no bearing whatsoever on real life, the subject becomes frustrated. He begins to register distress, brainwaves. It's fascinating, says Lieberman, how the brain processes rejection. To the brain, he says, social pain feels a lot like physical pain. For example, a broken heart can feel as intensely as a broken leg. And so Dr. Lieberman concludes that when looking at the brain scans side by side, without knowing which is an analysis of physical pain and which is social pain, he says it is difficult to tell the difference. In layman's terms, what he's saying is, when we experience threats, to our social connections, bonds, and families, the brain responds in much the same way that it does to physical pain. Now, if that be true, then I think it might be safe to say in the context of this reading that worse than the physical angst of crucifixion, worse than the thorns and nails, is the emotional distress of being distant from those you love. And so it was with Peter. Peter is now at arm's length following Jesus from a distance. Now, if you know Peter in the rest of the story in the Gospels, Peter's a big talker. He he was the first to confess Jesus as Messiah at Caesarea. A short time before the trial in Caiaphas' house, When told by Jesus that he would deny, how did he respond? With great bravado. I will never forsake you. I've learned never to say never. I will never forsake you, he said, even if all the others do. I will never leave you in the lurch. Even if everybody deserts you, I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. But he did. It's easy to make promises when things are going our way, but it's very difficult to keep them when the chips are down. Peter's biggest problem is sometimes ours. He was a little overconfident. You know what it means to be overconfident. I'm I'm a little bit unsure of people who are too sure about themselves, aren't you? Here's one of my favorite overconfident pictures here. That reminds me of Simon Peter. His eyes are bigger than his strength. And who was it that said, overconfidence is the most dangerous form of carelessness. Overconfidence is the most dangerous form of carelessness. By the way, that's a quote from Star Wars, if you didn't know. And so here we are, this third Sunday of Lent, in the shadow of a cross, And with the big fisherman, fear apprehends his heart, just takes over. In fact, three times, isn't it interesting, the number three? Everything happens in threes here. Jesus predicts three times a cross. Three times Peter denies. The first time he is confronted by a servant girl of the high priest, and he pleads ignorance. I don't know who you're talking about, he said. A second time, he denies any and all association with Jesus. And finally, the third time, he actually takes an oath. He invokes a curse on himself, if you can imagine. So help me, God, he says. If I have any knowledge of this man, may I be struck down. And suddenly, Peter, the rock, becomes Simon, the sand following at a distance. It's important to note, I think, push the pause button for a moment, that the people to whom Mark is writing, second-generational Christians 20, 30 years after the fact, the people that Mark is writing, Roman Christians, are facing in their own lives similar circumstances. In fact, many of them are facing hardship and persecution because of their faith in Jesus, And consequently, what's happening is because of persecution, some are retracting their confession. In the church community, those who have remained true to Jesus are now questioning whether they should let these traitors, these deniers, back into the fold. And to answer the question, Mark reminds them that the leader of the church blew it. But that wasn't the end of him. He would later be restored, he would be recalled, reconciled. So this story for them and for us is a word both of warning and compassion. When you read the rest of the story, to me, the key to Peter's turnaround is his response to his failure. After his rejection, the cock crows And he instantly remembers Jesus' prediction before the cock crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. And notice in Mark's gospel, everything during Holy Week that Jesus said would happen, happens. So when Peter hears the rooster crow, what does he do? He breaks down and weeps. Tears of grief, tears of remorse It's interesting, I'm reminded of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. He said this, "'Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation and brings no regret.'" Casey, I was reminded of this as you were praying a high priestly prayer of repentance that this text reminds me of the church's need to confess This text reminds me of my own need to confess, and I realized this week that if I spent as much time on my knees confessing my sin as I do rationalizing my sin, the world would be a better place. Have you ever wept because of your own sin? It's intriguing to me that Mark's gospel, more than any of the others, seems to highlight the failure of the disciples the flaws. And I've often wondered why that's the case, because in some cases, Luke and Matthew and John, they they clean it up just a little bit. But Mark always… I mean, if I'm Mark and I'm writing a story to change the world, to evangelize the world, to spread the gospel, why must he air the dirty laundry (laughs) of the disciples? Why tell everything that you know? And I finally figured it out, because he wants the church to know that these apostles are just like us. We have a tendency to put them on a pedestal. They're just like us. They put their clothes on the same way that we do. They don't always get it right. They struggle, they fail, they stumble, they fall. I remember something Carlisle Marney once said, the great Baptist preacher of the 20th century who was from Harriman, Tennessee. I heard him preach when I was about eight years of age. He said, and I quote, I never walk into a pulpit without a limp, for I too, like everyone else, am broken. That's why Mark records The Laundry. But the good news is that Jesus doesn't define us by our failure. Indeed, I don't know if you've discovered it or not, but I've found out the hard way that failure is often the best teacher I learned the most from my own stumbling. Thomas Edison, the great inventor, said, I've not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that won't work. Einstein said, anyone who has never made a mistake has never tried anything new. And the truth of the matter is, sometimes we're so afraid to fail that we refuse to risk. But the nature of discipleship is risk. I mean, Jesus said it. He who seeks to save his life will lose it, but she who loses her life for my sake will save it. And besides, what's the point of life if you don't attempt something remarkable? Anything that I've ever done that was of any consequence initially scared me to death. When I felt the call of Jesus... I didn't run to it, I ran from it, it scared me to death. And apart from the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, you cannot do what Jesus is asking you to do, but equipped with that kind of power, all things are possible. Failure is not the end of the story for Peter any more than it is for me or for you. On Easter day, after the debacle at Golgotha, you remember the women come to the tomb to anoint the body, to have the funeral. But there isn't anybody, and you can't have a funeral without the remains. And suddenly, an angel, a messenger dressed in white, appears to the women, and they're alarmed. That's an understatement. They're scared to death. And the angel says... Don't be afraid. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. There's no denial of that. But he isn't here. He's risen. And then this mysterious messenger gives the women an errand to run. I love this. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he'll meet them in Galilee. Now, why on earth would you single out Peter? Now, if I'm Peter and I get this news, this is not good news to me. I mean, can you imagine the women relaying this message? Guys behind their barricade of guilt and fear. Jesus is alive and well and he's gonna meet you in Galilee. And by the way, he said he is especially looking forward to seeing you, Peter. Now, if I'm Peter, I'm thinking, "Uh uh-oh, this is not good. Jesus is calling me out. It's like on Wednesday morning at Bible study. When the hour is over and Bishop Spain says, peace be with you, go on your way, be a faithful witness. By the way, Ron, you stick around. I need to talk to you. That may not be good news for Ron. By the way, and Peter, what's he gonna do? Put him in his place? Sock it to the big fisherman? No, that's not Jesus. He's not not calling him to revile him. He's calling to reconcile him, to give him a do over, to give him another chance. One translation says, Go tell his disciples and even Peter, (laughs) especially Peter. In fact, try putting your name in that sentence. Go tell his disciples even Davis, even Toy, even Casey, especially Charlie, (laughs) even James. Baseball season begins this week. Anybody excited about that? I am. I'm elated. I played as a boy. I was a catcher. Uh, Like being a preacher, you're in on every play. I love baseball. My hero growing up was Henry Aaron. He still is. I had no idea what he went through during his time until later. But as a seven-year-old boy on Crestridge Drive, throwing a tennis ball up against the steps with a glove in my hand, listening to Milo Hamilton call the play-by-play, I think I learned more about preaching from listening to Milo Hamilton than anybody else. I'm a lifetime baseball fan. I'm a trivia guy, too, and so if you want to go to lunch and talk baseball, I can do it with the best, or as my wife says, with the worst. One of the major league players from old days that I've always felt sorry for is an outfielder whose name is Fred Snodgrass. Here's a little trivia for you. Fred played for the New York Giants when New York had the Giants, from 1910 to 1913. This young man played three World Series championships during those years, and his team lost every series. He was among the the league's greatest outfielders at the time, but he is remembered for one thing, one thing. In the 10th inning of the deciding game in the 1912 series, he dropped a routine fly ball that put the tying runner on second base, which ultimately led to defeat. The error became known as Snodgrass's muff. He was 25. He retired from baseball at age 30, moved to California. He and his wife, Addie, had two daughters. Fred Snodgrass became a successful banker, a popular city councilman, and was even elected mayor in Oxnard, which is the largest, largest city in Ventura County in California. He died on April the 5th, 1974. His obituary was headlined in the New York Times, and this is what it said. Fred Snodgrass, 86, dead, ball player, muffed 1912, fly ball. That's all I got. How's that for an epitaph? 61 years after the error, still defined by one mistake, by a dropped ball. And so it is with the world that we live in, but not with God. God. God never defines a person by his or her failure. He redefines you by his grace. And so it was with Peter. I wonder what Peter's epitaph would have been. I wonder if he got a a line in the Jerusalem Gazette. Maybe he did. Maybe it said this. Simon Peter, dead, muffed apostle, dropped the ball in Caiaphas' courtyard. He did drop the ball. But that's not how life is defined. He made a mistake. He wasn't a mistake. And Jesus just redefined his life by grace. Something happened to Simon, in all that fear, in all that following at a distance on the third day, something happened. This teacher, this rabbi that he loved so much came back. This Christ from whom he had distanced himself bridged the gap to Simon, and he revealed himself and redefined Peter's life. By the way, the last thing that we know about Peter is that he took up the cross. After Easter Day, he was never quite the same man, no longer a distant follower. Now he followed Jesus so closely that he gave his life for his rabbi in the same way as his rabbi, with one exception— he asked to be crucified upside down because he said, I'm unworthy to die as Jesus died. And sand became rock. Again, redefined by grace. And there's nothing trivial about that. It's called cross training. And that man learned from the best, and even his failure became his victory. Upon that cross of Jesus, mine eye at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me, and from my stricken heart with tears Two wonders, I confess the wonders of redeeming love and my unworthiness. Cross training. When you follow this man closely, you will come to a point where you will say, as did Saint Bernard of Clairvaux, what language shall I borrow? To thank thee, dearest friend, for this, thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end. Oh, make me thine forever. And should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love for thee. Peter never did. I hope you don't.